It's Christmas, and if you're like most people, you're probably stressed and exhausted. So hopefully, you have a little bit of time to talk about a weird little cemetery story that relates directly to Christmas. Today, I'm going local and talking about the story of Burford Holly. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb with a View. So if you are listening to this on the day it comes out, which is highly unlikely, unless you are hiding in a room from your family, it will be Christmas Eve. And I decided if you listened to last week's episode that I was going to do a Christmas themed episode before (laughs) I have to admit this, I was going to do children's graves. And then I decided that was a little too messed up even for me to do on Christmas Eve. So I decided to do a short episode because there's not really a whole lot to do a really long episode on, but about the origins of Burford Holly, which originated right here in Atlanta, Georgia at Westview Cemetery. So I'm doing a Christmas themed episode. It's short. It's fun. There's a lot of speculation in it. I'm going to be fair. You know, I read just about everything that I could read on the gentleman who created this variety. There's a lot of questions going around about it, and I'm going to speculate on why I think that is later on. But hopefully it's a fun little topic and maybe gives you some distractions if you need to, oh, I don't know, say take a walk, make a run to the store for some milk. It'll give you something to listen to in the car. So... To start off with, I wanted to talk a little bit about Holly in general. Now, it's a somewhat old-timey Christmas carol, but I think it's worth bringing up the Christmas carol of the Holly and the Ivy. And if you listen to most Christmas music on the radio, in between Mariah Carey and Bruce Springsteen's Santa Claus is Coming to Town, you may hear an old-timey version of the Holly and the Ivy. And it's actually a lovely little Christmas song, but obviously not popular today for many reasons. At first, it does appear secular because they're singing about plants, but it is a deeply religious Christmas carol. The most common version you would probably hear on the radio today is the version that Bing Crosby recorded. Still probably one of my favorites. I think it's hard to beat Bing when it comes to just the sheer sexiness of his voice. The man played a priest. Still had a sexy voice. But I know he was an alcoholic and a terrible man and beat his kids. But you know, when he sings White Christmas... Anyways, enough about Bing Crosby. But... That's probably the most common one that I hear occasionally on the radio these days. It has also been covered by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, a lot of the big ticket, you know, Trans-Siberian Orchestra type, because it is a very swelling type of music. Now, there's a lot of disagreement about the origins of this particular song. What we do know is that the modern version, modern, I use that term loosely, that we tend to hear today dates to around 1909, when it was recorded by a man named Cecil Sharp in the town of, I kid you not, Chipping Camden, Gloucestershire, England, a small town which was apparently in the Cotswolds. It may be the most British name of a town ever. And he recorded it from a Mrs. Mary Clayton, who sat down in January of that year and sang it herself for him. And at this point, he records the music. Now, 
The lyrics or the words to this particular song take on several variations, but like I said, this is the most recent version. It's the one that you would have heard. Written versions of the lyrics generally go back to around 1823, and it's argued that it probably originated as a hymn-type song that was sung in church sometime in the early 19th century, though the words are likely much older. Based on the form and the way that it's written, if you are interested in those type of literary things, most people generally think that the words probably date to a 17th century ballad or poem. Just based on the tone, on the rhythm of the particular song, If you are not familiar with the words, I am going to read them to you. I am not going to sing them to you because I would prefer to still have listeners once this is all over. And the words, you know, I can definitely break it down for you afterwards. But obviously there's a deep amount of symbolism. The holly and the ivy, when both are fully grown, of all the trees that are in the wood, the holly bears the crown. The rising of the sun and the running of the deer, the playing of the merry organ, sweet singing in the choir. The holly bears a blossom as white as the lily flower, and Mary bore sweet Jesus Christ to be our sweet Savior. The holly bears a berry as red as any blood, and Mary bore sweet Jesus Christ for us sinners good. The holly bears a prickle as sharp as any thorn, and Mary bore sweet Jesus Christ on Christmas Day in the morn. The holly bears a bark as bitter as any gall, and Mary bore sweet Jesus Christ for to redeem us all. The holly and the ivy, when they are both full grown, of all the trees that are in the wood, the holly bears the crown. So if you are familiar on your Christian symbolism, there's a lot of things that are very, very blatant there. So the most central aspect is that the holly is a symbol for Christ, the ivy is a symbol for Mary, enfolding and holding and wrapping itself around. And this is often a pairing that you will see in settings where both of the plants grow. There are a couple of different symbols in terms of the colors, which are pretty innate. So the idea that when holly flowers, it is a white flower symbolizing purity, but They have these red fruits, which symbolize the blood and the sacrifice of Christ. Their branches are thorny and prickly, a symbol of the crown of thorns, which Christ will eventually wear. All of these are very, very central ideas. And if you look this up, and if you read any book that talks about Christmas, these symbols are all abundantly clear. So the other big one is that um, if you look at holly, both the shape of the bush and the shape of the leaves, there is a sort of flame-like appearance, um, which flames are often seen as a symbol of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the world, as well as God's flaming love for these people. On top of that, holly is an evergreen. So it does not die in the winter. It is one of the things that continues blooming. So it it symbolizes the chance for eternal life. All around, it's a Christmas smorgasbord of symbols. Not surprisingly, holly has become a very central aspect. And it also has become very popular. 
in a variety of settings, in people's yards, in public parks, and in cemeteries, precisely for this reason, because it provides color even in the winter when things are dying off. So that's where we start. But the story takes a turn when we start to talk about what is arguably the most common variety of ivy, excuse me, not ivy, of holly that exists in the United States today. And that is the Burford holly. And it depends on where you live, what is more popular. If you live in the South, certainly it is going to be the Burford holly. And there's a couple of reasons for that, which I will talk about in just a minute. Um, English varieties of holly European varieties do still exist, but they are less popular just because of the difficulty of cultivating them as opposed to um, what I will discuss are the Asian varieties of holly. I do not claim to have a green thumb. I have one sad succulent growing in my house. So any misinformation that I should give about plants, I heartily apologize for upfront. I was just trying to be festive. So scientifically... Burford holly is Ilex cornuta burfordi, and it is considered to be a cultivar, which a cultivar in the world of horticulture is essentially something that has been bred through selection. So you start off with the initial variety of plants, and then you selectively breed it to get certain characteristics. I'm sure all of you remember Gregor Mendel and his pea plants from middle school science when you had to do those silly little Punnett squares. Essentially, the same thing is done here. So people take a known variety of plant and they start to breed it for certain qualities. Now, the original Ilex cornuta is actually known as Asian holly, and it grows in both China and Korea in areas of relatively high altitude. It grows in ravines, along mountain paths. Uh, It's very hardy for a number of reasons, mainly because of the environment that it lives in. Now, the Burfordi cultivar, which is the one that exists here and the one that was originally grown at Westview Cemetery, is remarkable for a couple of reasons. The main reason it is both drought and heat resistant, which the main varieties of English and European holly are not. They tend not to hold up well in very steamy conditions like we tend to get here in the South. The other attractive quality is it's very easy to transplant and move around which is another thing that English and European varieties of holly generally do not. So it became popular because it was very good for gardeners. You could go, you could buy it, plant it in your yard, and with relatively little maintenance, it's going to thrive. With the exception of very, very acidic soil, it can grow in just about anything. So it's something that is very easy, and it's always interesting. Ever since I first read about Burford holly, you start to notice it in people's yards, and these things get massive. So it is very fast growing and very dense. Um, It also holds up well to pruning. So you can basically chop this thing down to nothing and it's going to grow back very quickly. It grows to basically a minimum of 15 feet, but you can see these 25, 30. Sometimes I have seen them as high as almost 40 feet, though they start to bow under the weight of that at a certain point. They have what are known as revolute leaves along an apical spine. 
and they have a very heavy fruit set. So when you see these in the winter, when they are in full, um, full flourishing fruit, they are heavy with berries. Very, very striking. Um, traditionally, the Ilex Cornuta, the traditional Asian varieties, they only reach about 10 feet. So it's believed that part of the selective breeding which resulted in the Burford Holly also allowed them to grow a little bit bigger and maybe be more resistant to this type of pruning. Um, but they can be very nice. You can let them grow wild, in which case they are all over the place. Or you can have them very like tight and mowed down and shaped as well. And they kind of thrive under both conditions. There has also been a dwarf variety, which is known as either the dwarf Burford or also the Burford Nana, which I kind of like. Um, this is a smaller variety, as the name suggests, that it usually grows to about six or eight feet in height, and it has smaller leaves as well. So all of the dimensions on the plant are a little bit smaller. The leaves on that also tend to be a darker shade of green. Regardless, Burford Holly is lovely. It is quite beautiful. These glossy, shiny, waxy looking leaves, they, they almost don't look real. And these just vibrant, bright red berries. And as I said, when it flowers, they are sort of these lacy white flowers that grow on it. And it's fascinating if you do a search for this, um, particularly here in Atlanta, there are so many articles about the garden clubs and the floral arrangements that women make with Burford Holly. And every Atlanta bride who got married in December, they talk about her having her white lilies and Stephanotis and Burford Holly. Really quite remarkable stuff. Just in terms of seeing how quickly it became a cultural phenomenon where everybody would be familiar with the name and that it could be published in the newspaper and people immediately knew what you were talking about. And it wasn't just Holly, it was Burford Holly. And there was a distinction where people saw how lovely and beautiful and distinctive the leaves and the berries were that made it very desirable. In terms of, because I knew you wanted to talk about how hollies have sex, um, they are dioecious. I probably butchered that word, which essentially means that there are boy hollies and girl hollies. Uh, so Buddy Hollies and Betty Hollies. And each plant has flowers, but they are all of the same sex, which means that if you want to have baby Hollies, um, then Buddy and Betty have to be near each other, either in the yard or perhaps across the fence line if your neighbor has a neighboring Holly bush. Um, but in order for them to propagate, you do, yes, need to have both boy and girl Hollies. The other reason that they are very popular with floral arrangers is that their leaves are very flexible and you can bend them back. So when you're making floral arrangements, you can actually kind of move and manipulate the leaves so you don't get stabbed by, the, by those sharp little prickers. A weird distinction, but I guess if you are in that business, it makes sense. Um, I just always picture the scene from Love Actually with um, Mr. Bean when he is wrapping the present for a cheating Alan Rickman, and he has to take out the gloves and the shears to try to cut a piece of holly. Um, he would not have to do that had he used Burford holly. So fun Christmas fact. 
it is easy to grow if you have an established plant and you are planting it in your yard, but it is rather difficult to propagate. I did read an article where they talked about how out of 100 cuttings, maybe two to three actually will go to root and be able to be propagated. And when I talk a little bit about the original Burford Hollies um, and the fate of them, you will kind of understand why this is. So, where did it come from? Well, it is generally acknowledged that the Burford Holly was developed sometime around 1895, right here in Atlanta, Georgia, where I am sitting at this moment, at Westview Cemetery. Now, Westview Cemetery, for those of you who are not from Atlanta, was basically the second really large established cemetery in Atlanta. By the 1880s, Oakland Cemetery here in the city has started to fill up. As a result, they needed to find a new solution for burials. Now, Oakland, um, again, for those of you who are local, I apologize because you probably already know this. Oakland had started off as the city cemetery, eventually grew into more of a distinct kind of rural style cemetery. Now, Westview Cemetery is going to be very different. Westview is going to be a lawn park style cemetery, which if you are, again, a longtime listener, you know was developed by Adolph Strauch at um, Spring Grove Cemetery in Cincinnati. And it makes sense because he takes over Spring Grove after the Civil War, completely redevelops it and redesigns it into this much more open park-like landscape. And the establishment of Westview Cemetery, which occurs in 1884, makes perfect sense because it is ripe. This is the time when that entire parks movement, when the Lawn Park Cemetery movement, all of this is being popularized. So Westview is a much more open park-like landscape. It is the largest cemetery in the southeast. Um, It's massive, absolutely massive, and the majority of it is still undeveloped. So from the very beginning, you have a number of landscape gardeners, landscape architects who do work with Westview as part of maintaining this open park-like appearance. The first of these is a gentleman named Thomas Veal. Yes, Veal is in Veal Parmesan. Um, Actually, no, it's not. There's an E on the end. I'm kidding. I'm just hungry. So Thomas Veal begins a long tradition of having a very, very rich gardening atmosphere there. Eventually, and I'm not going to get too deep into the history of Westview today because it's not as relevant, but I will say this. So Westview eventually will have, you know, by the uh, by and after the turn of the century, massive greenhouses on the property. Unfortunately, none of this still exists. It's all been demolished. But they sold plants. They had their own flower shop. In terms of the history of gardening in Atlanta, Westview Cemetery is extremely significant. And it became a big part of their business plan at a certain point. And they, and many cemeteries had this. Many cemeteries had their own greenhouses for the cultivation of plants, for both gardening and replenishing their landscape, as well as selling to families who wanted to have, pay to have flowers planted on their loved ones' graves. Westview definitely has one of the more impressive legacies of this. So they are always going to have a rich tradition of gardeners who know what they are doing and really are invested in the landscape. One of these gardeners is a man by the name of Thomas W. Burford. 
Now, Burford is born, and there's some conflicting information about when he's born. I'm going to go with 1851, because that seems to be the most general number that I see. So he is born in 1851, and he is born in the town of Hackney, which is a borough of London. We do know that his father was English and was also a gardener, and his mother was actually American from Virginia. I don't know their names. I would strongly suspect that his father's name was also Thomas, at least from the records that I have seen. Now, Thomas lives in and around London. One of the biggest things that I have seen, and it depends on the articles you read and which sources you look at, either he or his father worked as a gardener for Queen Victoria at Windsor Castle. You will see this over and over and over again. Now, since we just talked about our old buddy, the widow of Windsor, last week, you will recall that at this particular era in history, Victoria is queen. She is queen from 1837 until her death in 1901. So it's entirely possible that either or both of them could have worked there. I tend to suspect that it was not Thomas himself who worked for Victoria. And I'm going to tell you why, based on his life. He immigrates to the United States in 1875, so around the time he is 24 years old. Now, that certainly does not mean, particularly, you know, you know, 24 is not that young, particularly in the 19th century. But from everything that I have read about him, he does claim that he went to college. So that takes a couple years off. So it's not like he's been working since he was 14. So if he went to college and spent a few years doing that. Also, everything that I have ever seen about him on the British side lists him as living in London. Now, if you're familiar at all with Windsor Castle, it's not that far from London. It's about 35 miles west of London. And while 35 miles is nothing to us, many people commute from further than that to get into Atlanta every day. In the 19th century, that was a decent distance. So I suspect if someone worked for Queen Victoria at Windsor, it was probably his father when his father was younger prior to settling down and having a family. Just because every record that I've ever seen, it shows him as living actually in London, not outside of London. And that's not to say that I haven't missed a record or that a record doesn't exist, which is entirely possible. I just suspect more, you know, his father had worked as a gardener and taught him everything he knew. Because Thomas, when he does immigrate to the United States, which is around 1875, like I said, when he is about 24, 25 years old, he does move there and he settles in New England at first. In 1880, he is living in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and he is listed at the age of 30 as working as a clerk in a florist shop. So he immigrates to the United States, and by the time he is 30 years old, he has been in the United States for five or six years, and he is already working in the trade. Now, I have seen conflicting information. So I read one newspaper article that says that he is working in Westview starting in 1886. The actual history of Westview Cemetery doesn't necessarily have him, uh, I'm talking about the official book that has been written about the history of Westview by Jeff Clemens, um, doesn't have him working there until later. Um, so as I said, Westview was first conceived in 1884. So if he was there in 1886, he would have been there right at the very beginning. But I do know that Thomas Veal was the first director of the gardeners there. 
So I don't know if he was an apprentice gardener. Again, if I went to Westview and I asked to see their records, I'm sure I could find a lot of this stuff out. (laughs) Those of you who have followed me on social media for a long time know that I did get myself kicked out of Westview for taking pictures back in June. Um, And I have felt very uncomfortable going there ever since. Um, So as much as I think Westview is remarkable and has a lot of history, Um, I was disinclined to really go there and to do any deep kind of research for this. So I apologize. You have to deal with what I could find out from books on the internet this week because I don't want to go back there. But I know that in the Westview archives, they have a wealth of information and they probably, I could probably sit down and trace exactly when every person worked there, what their payroll was. Is that really relevant to the creation of the Holly? Probably not. All of the records do suggest that the holly was originally cultivated in the 1890s. Now, exactly how this happened, we don't necessarily know. So, in the 1890s, at this point, we would have a man in his 40s who is described as being of medium build. He was apparently a little eccentric, Thomas Burford. He apparently would only get a haircut once every three years. He had a long mustache and a beard and was a little quirky, but very talented. So the story goes is that there were originally six plants, six cultivars, which he developed. Now, we don't know exactly how he developed them, but the rumor is is that he had gotten some seeds in the mail. Some of the rumors say that these came from William R. Smith, which William R. Smith is a pretty good person to get something in the mail from if you work in the business because he was the superintendent of the botanical gardens in Washington, D.C. It is thought that it was an example of Ilex cornuta, the original Chinese holly, and that Burford monkeyed around with them. This is my personal opinion. I think that he got cuttings or he got seeds of this holly and he tried to see if he could get it to grow at Westview and this required some selective breeding between these original six sample plants because he was trying to develop something that was more drought resistant that could stand up to southern weather and so what I think personally is that I just think that he knew his trade and I think that he was very good at this stuff. And so maybe he didn't reveal all of his secrets, but he developed this. And there were apparently three successful original examples, and he was very stingy about giving out cuttings of them. But give out cuttings he did, both to folks who worked in the local gardening community, as well as people who worked at other cemeteries. And so you start to see them being cultivated by other cemeteries in the region in places like Tennessee and Virginia. Again, with very hot, dry conditions in the summer that would need this drought-resistant variety. If you read Jeff Clements' History of Westview, he goes into how it was originally marketed and how it went from being something that was at the cemetery and was given out to a select few to basically being sold and mass-produced. Basically, just some gardeners got a hold of it and they started cultivating themselves. If you recall, though, I talked about how holly, how this is an easy holly to grow, but not an easy one to initially propagate. Um, It seems like he probably interacted with some folks who knew what they were doing. 
because by the time the 1940s roll around, it's very difficult to open up a newspaper without finding an advertisement for Burford Holly. And it seems like it was popularized around the 1920s. As I said, eventually Westview would have their own floor shop and they would sell plants out of the greenhouse. This does not happen during Burford's era. From what I can see, I believe Burford retired from Westview in 1919. Though I've read in some newspaper articles that they say that, you know, he popularized the holly in 1925. Like I said, there, there's a lot of dodginess in the timeline. What I do know is that he lived in a series of rooming houses when he was here. Um, so, for example, right around the time that the holly was originally cultivated, he lived on Houston Street here in the city. He is still boarding in 1910, so he's 57 in 1910, um, maybe slightly older, depending on, again, which state you look at. Um, he is listed as a landscape architect in a cemetery, um, and he is boarding in the house of Alexander and Charlotte Scott. Um, Alexander Scott is also an Englishman, so he lives with them in a rooming house. So he lives on and off, but eventually he does buy his own house on Gordon Street. Now, the house he lived in was originally 898 Gordon Street, which if you are familiar with Atlanta, this is in southwest Atlanta, and Gordon Street actually is right by. Um, it, it starts right off Ralph David Abernathy, which is the street that goes by the front of Westview Cemetery. So he lived not far at all from the cemetery. And he lived there apparently in a 10-room house by himself. He was never married, had no children, but... Um, only lived in one room of the house, which sounds very strange. Um, but this was all recounted in a newspaper article from 1954 um, by G.S. Lilly, who was one of the gardeners at Westview at the time, where he talked about having worked with him as a younger man. It's an interesting situation. The fact that he had this weird kind of solitary life he seems like a guy who just liked his plants and didn't really want anything to do with anyone else. In an interesting bit of Atlanta lore, so this article, which ran in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, like, weekend magazine in December of 1954, it's written by a woman named Janet Alcorn-Williams, who is in and of herself, I see this name and I'm like, wait a minute, she's pretty significant in and of herself in terms of the history of Atlanta, um, so her father was president of the Joint Stock Bank. Um, she grew up on the Prado here in Atlanta. She, she is kind of a pedigree, old, old school Atlanta girl herself. Went to Wesleyan College. She graduated in the class of 1944. And eventually went on to marry a man named Emery Williams, who you might be more familiar with because he is the former chief financial officer of Sears Roebuck and Company. So she was sort of the lady reporter who covered Burford Holly. And I don't know if she just did the garden clubs or anything like that. As far as I can tell, she's still alive. Emery Williams died in 1914 at the age of 102. Um, he eventually ended up going all around the world. He was a major part of moving manufacturing overseas for Sears, um, did work in Ceylon and China and led a fascinating life. So it was so interesting to me that this sort of 
young reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. She went on to live this fabulous life and also has like a really pedigreed history with Atlanta. Um, it was an inter- it was an interesting little article to read. But even this article, which is written in the 1950s, in this they list him as having lived to the age of 90, which would have meant that he died sometime in the early 40s during World War II. Based on this article, following his retirement, he moved to Dallas, Georgia, which is in Paulding County, not terribly far from Atlanta, um, where a couple cared for him until his death. Now, I have tried to find a little bit about him there and his life. He doesn't show up in census records there. He doesn't show up um, as having a grave. I seem to recall when I first read about him a year or two ago, looking him up and finding his grave. Apparently that was incorrect and I didn't. Um, So I don't know if he has an unmarked grave, which would be very, very sad if he did. I'm assuming he probably ended up buried somewhere down there, but I don't actually know. Regardless, he lives on in more than name. If you do go to the Friends of Historic Westview page online, their webpage, they do have a tiny little picture of him where you can see his impressive mustache. Um, It's one of the few pictures of him that exists. I believe it was taken from a staff photo that was taken of all the people that worked at Westview. But now... Burford holly is arguably one of the most popular decorative plants that literally exists everywhere across the South and across the entire country. If you look this up in, you know, gardening and horticulture magazines, it's well acknowledged. And it has been acknowledged for a significant amount of time. If you look up how long it's actually been a recognized cultivar of that species um, of Ilex cornuta, It's been around since 1937 that it was officially listed. And obviously, from this podcast, you know, it existed at least 40 years before that. So it's a pretty interesting connection. And I think it's one that we don't necessarily talk a lot about. Unfortunately, many cemeteries, as it no longer became profitable to have these type of in-house gardening operations... They let them go. They tore down their greenhouses. And I think it's sad because so many of these were quite remarkable. Um, I know I have talked about this in the past, but Arlington Cemetery in Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania, next to where I used to live, literally a block from my old house, um, it still had its greenhouses. And they had sat empty for years. And they weren't in great condition. A lot of the glass was broken. And recently a young couple who was looking to start a farmer's market came in and they started to grow things in the greenhouses and they essentially rented them out from the cemetery and have made it into an incredibly successful undertaking. And so I think it's kind of exciting to see community be able to come into cemeteries and do those type of things. I would love to see a community garden or, you know, a cooperative or something like that come in there. And if these do still exist in cemeteries around the country, rather than being torn down. But sadly, the ones at Westview no longer exist, but the Burford Holly is a little legacy of that to remind us every Christmas that cemeteries are a vital piece of our history and landscape. So, Merry Christmas to you all. A little fun Victorian holiday feel. We don't know if he worked for Queen Victoria, but let's go ahead and pretend that he did. Because, as we know, nobody does Christmas quite like the Victorians. So, enjoy your holly. Enjoy your ivy. Enjoy your eggnog. 
Ew. Enjoy your presence. All of that good stuff. Stay happy. Stay healthy. I will be back next week with more Cemetery Adventures. But for now, Merry Christmas. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View.